heavily, I'm a clown. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. I don't think we have. I I saw your uh, uh, your talk at the Miami conference. Oh, did you? Uh, on a smaller stage there, I believe, right? Were you Were you at the conference, or did you just? No, watch? unfortunately not. I had a ticket, but uh, the odds of me getting into the U.S. were were small, to say the least. I, uh-huh. I needed a work visa, and like to get that, I need to go to Stockholm and stand in a line for like four hours just to get into the embassy and then there's no guarantee that i will actually get the visa anyway especially okay. not when you know mentioning bitcoin i i think that wouldn't have helped <laughs> are you in sweden yeah okay so and it's hard to get out right now huh yeah yeah well we didn't have any lockdowns or anything not not really so so this we've been uh, fairly treated fairly well during covid really so it's yeah. been the the us was the tricky part there then right yeah definitely okay. interesting yeah, yeah uh, it started with trump banning europeans from going to the us and then biden just took the torch <laughs> i mean it's so weird um people have so d- diverse opinions about these two last presidents of yours but i to me they're both they're both equally weird i mean they uh, from what i see over here they they have almost the same politics like the ubi thing and the you know trade embargo thing and the lockdown thing it's all the same it's It's funny isn't it yeah their policy making isn't that different it's mostly social policy that's different yeah I heard something about Trump uh, in the beginning that he, for every rule that he added to the system, he removed two other rules. And I like that. Yeah. Because uh, I, I think less politics is always better. I agree, actually. But, and that's, uh, I, uh, as far as I know, that that's true. If you go and look at the volume of the Federal Register, which is mm-hmm. where basically the book where they keep all the laws. Uh, It went down considerably during his presidency when ordinarily in the past, it's only gotten larger. Yeah, and that's a good thing, I guess. It's uh, it's something. Uh, I don't know. I actually that's a really good kind of like basis for what I really want to talk about today, Um, because in America. So obviously I have an American point of view, right? All my colleagues are American. I live in America. Um, Where, Where in America? Right now I'm in Florida. All right. So you stayed after the conference. Um, well, so I was here already. Uh, All right. Yeah. I, I've always kind of gravitated towards the southeastern part of the United States, yep. where I spent most of my life, and it's where I like to be. 
uh, tends to be a bit more conservative, which, and so like the whole conservative thing in, in America is really weird, right? Because there are a lot of people in America who they would call themselves conservatives and on the face of it, they are liberty minded people. Um, but interestingly, they're willing to accept pretty much any premise from the government, um, with the exception of a few things that they're very, very um, fervently against, like um, seizure of like anything that impacts like gun control. Um, yeah. they, they tend to not like things like UBI and those types of things, and they tend to be a bit more socially conservative. But they're not really economically conservative at all. Well, we don't really have that in America. And they're also their their liberty stems more so from a blind faith of patriotism um, yeah. than it does the actual principles of liberty. And it's it's actually fascinating because you, you talk to these people. Well, just the other day, I had a conversation with a girl who said to me, so we were talking about the economy. It wasn't like a economic conversation. It's just the subject of the economy came up and she said, um, yeah, we need Trump back in office because she, she was talking about all the how high unemployment is and how bad like the economy is and all this money they printed. And she says, yeah, we need to get Trump back in office. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, I don't think Trump's economic policy was any different than what Biden is doing. In fact, he'd be just doing more of the same thing. Um, and yet yeah. because you're a, a conservative, um, because your idea of liberty is based around who, which team has their guy at yeah. the head of office in, you know, the political structure, you think that the country is more prosperous and free when Team Red is in the White House instead of Team Blue. Yeah, uh, I think that all countries have the same problem. It's just, uh, it's just easier to point at it in, in the US since it's a sort of a two party system which is one step from a dictatorship, really. Uh, you, you have two, two, two people to choose from in reality. It's like, well, you have a libertarian party, but no one votes for it. So it's, there's really no point to that, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, like, to me, uh, the politics has an origo, which is no politics at all. That's like zero politics. And all policies are to the left of that uh, in slightly different angles of authoritarianism. But it's all the same thing. It's all tax funded and it's all, like you say, they, they have no real, their conservatism isn't based around real liberties, but, but rather patriotism and nationalism and stuff like this, which is just as bad as, as socialism in my, in my opinion. I think like the thing to strive for is as little involvement of politicians and politics in people's lives uh, as possible. Uh, yeah, and that's what's so interesting. The, the American American political science is fascinating to me because we have this framework for government um, that starts with negative rights, right? And over the years, as the government grows and creeps its tendrils into absolutely every aspect of society, and adds on top all of these positive rights and legal monopolies and uh, regulatory moats and, and all of these things, you know, that governments and institutions and bureaucrats do that stagnate society. Uh, Americans 
seem to be under and and this is where i wonder you know how how we differ in our politics um, from some other countries is that americans still cling to this framework of negative rights and kind of refuse to acknowledge the fact that um, the creeping tendrils of the bureaucracy have more or less all but eroded that framework um, and they because they're so used you know for decades maybe even centuries now uh, Americans have been told that they've had to make sacrifice little bits of liberty here and there you know for the good f- to protect that framework um, in the name of democracy, in the name of liberty, we have to yeah. go and invade Afghanistan. Um, and I, it, and and they're able to rationalize it quite well. Yeah. What, what What do you mean exactly by negative rights? So rights that don't require um, infringing on the natural rights of anyone else. So, for example, um, you can take your property and you can grow some food on it and you can harvest that food and you can take it to the market and you can sell it. And by doing that, you're not impacting anybody's ability to do anything else because you're just using your property and you're reaping the profits of your own labor. A positive right would be, um, I don't, or I want to be able to send my kids to school, but I don't make enough money to pay the tuition. So I demand that the legislators create a tax. Uh, yeah. on you and on your labor so that I can afford to send my children to school. Yeah, that which is a weird position to have. Uh, like human rights uh, can only be rights if they don't, if they're, as you say, negative rights and don't like uh, tread on other people. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and th- this is in the same vein as uh, victimless crime, I think, like, like it's basically the same thing. That victimless crimes m- make makes no sense to me. What if the only person that is hurt by by you behaving in a certain way is yourself? Why why is that a crime? That is also weird. Like from a moral perspective and a first principles perspective, it makes no sense, right? Mm. But but societies. Uh, are so far from these thoughts in general, or, or politicians are, politics are. Um, they they don't frame problems like that. They they, they frame problems in uh, a different manner, and like they point at specific uh, specific symptoms of uh, societal problems, and not to to the actual causes of of these problems. Like 1971 and the and the, yeah. the dollar there, which yeah. which were, I know you 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 uh, you were behind that site, right? Uh, together with Ben. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, an excellent site, by the way. Thank and you. I, I I wrote a chapter on on that called the Ta- a tale of two Richards in my second book, Independence Reimagined, about Richard Cantillon and Richard Nixon. And how they were sort of polar opposites. I love it. Even though they were like 400 years apart. Oh. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very sad that we've, we're, we're living under the paradigm of, of the, uh, <laughs> the effects of the wrong Richard, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And so, well, it is, it's interesting uh, that you bring up 
addressing the symptoms and not the underlying causes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you have to wonder why that is. I, I think a lot of times it's just because of ineptitude more than anything. I think it's because politicians are incentivized to preserve status quo uh, in a lot of cases or, you know, pander to a constituency or pander to most often special interests, um, particularly in a situation where there's a legal monopoly on the ability to create wealth or not create wealth, create new money, which extracts wealth from, you know, the the greater populace. Um, the incentives are so misaligned that why, you know, it, it's almost not even in your interest to take the roundabout approach of trying to solve problems at their underlying cause. Um, because it's probably far more profitable as a bureaucrat to treat the symptoms. It is. And um, I have a ch another chapter in Independence Reimagined about that, that turned into one of those little videos I, I showed you before, one of these little animated videos. And it's a theory about why, why collectivists tend to win elections and form bigger parties. And the theory is like the more individualistic and the more free thinking you are, the less concerned you are with what group you belong to and and vice versa. So so people that are uh, not very independent in their thought processes and not very liberty minded or like uh, first principles minded, they 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 more easily form larger groups, mm. which is one of the basic flaws of democracy in general, because collectivists win elections and uh, as you say the the right and the left have the ba same basic problem uh, uh, in the US as well as in other countries that they they are both uh, they they claim to be something that they aren't and they to people it's more important to belong to this or that tribe than what that this or that tribe actually thinks and i i think this is a very under underestimated problem with democracy in the long run because i I, th I think all democracies tend towards more and more bureaucracy and more and more institutions and like they the the state grows like a cancer on society hmm. in that sense yeah yeah and i think america is a really good case study of that i mean it's a pretty young nation only 250 years old or so and it started i would say you know about as ideal as it could get probably not perfect um but the, the for, whole... for the time quite perfect uh, yeah. like when the constitution was written there's there's not much in there that doesn't make sense right from, right. A, from a perspective of that time yeah one of the things that jefferson said was that he he wished that they had been able to limit the government's ability to borrow money uh, and that was one of the only things that they didn't get in there that he wished that they could have gotten in there because it was through the government's continued borrowing of money and, you know, forcing banks to buy bonds and, you know, go read Rothbard's history of money and banking to see how that led to where we are today. Um, yeah. That, that it was that growth of the government's ability to borrow money and spend money um, that allowed it to continue to grow and centralize and power. And then we had, you know, the American civil war, which sort of completely, uh, ended the whole idea of, of states as sovereigns within the union uh, and and rather coalesced the idea of the sovereign being the union and not the individual states within the union. Um, 
and all of that and all of America's continued uh, borrowing and spending was always usually driven by war, some type of war, whether they be trade wars, um, usually, you know, to protect and promote some sort of mercantilist policy. Um, even as far back as right after the American Revolution, America was immediately engaged in all kinds of trade wars, usually to protect, you know, the interest, the economic interests of the quote unquote nation as a whole. Uh, and that was why they continue to borrow and spend, borrow and spend, grow bigger and bigger and more powerful. Yeah. And, and these things have s uh, such a larger impact than the, than people think it does. The, I mean, the uh, the ability to print money and the ability to borrow li limitless amounts of money, it's it's basically godlike powers to a nation state, right? Mm. They can uh, that. We're, 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 it's it's hard to 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 see it as anything else than the whole world being in a worst case scenario when it comes to like national debt. Mm. There's like four countries on the globe that don't have any kind of national debt, and there's like four small shit rich countries. <laughs> like <laughs> I think it's Norway and and a, a couple of Emirates or or some really uh, wealthy small nations like that. But everyone has else has a national debt that can never be paid back, and it it's just the mechanisms that that made that happen. It's so sad that that so few of us re react to to the actual problem because it's the underlying problem that that every other problem stems from that, including environmental problems and poverty and like you name it. It's all. It all stems from the ability to print limitless amount of amounts of cash, mm. as far as I see. Yeah, and you know the the thing that I think people miss a lot about debt is they they tend to focus on the repayment of that debt, right? You hear the Paul Krugman say things like "debt is money we owe to ourselves." Yeah, and he yeah. repeats it over and over as if that would make it true. Um, but what I think people oftentimes gloss over in regards to the debt is that that money was already spent, right? So that means all of that capital, all of those resources were already used up um, in some way, shape or form by the government. And what do we have to show for it? Really, truthfully, at the end of the day, imagine if that amount of capital and that amount of resources had been freed up or not stolen and, you know, been in the hands of productive people who make the world a better place. You know, we're talking about dozens of trillions of dollars that have just been squandered and what do we exactly. have to show for it that that's the saddest part the misallocation of resources uh, that comes from all of this i mean everything in every economic system where where there's just a, a slight amount of interventionism in the free market there's uh, that that screws everything up price signals don't work as they should and like so, so even even a very small in, interventionist policy uh, on a global scale can can uh, can cause a lot of harm. But what we have today is is just bizarre because it's so. Uh, it's not only interventionism. I would say it's central planning and centrally planned economies. So it's it's like the the end of the Soviet Soviet era. I I, I think we. Uh, of course, technology and the distribution systems have gotten so much better, so we don't really see these kil kilometer-long lines to the to, to get a loaf of bread or anything any any longer. But 
but we're certainly in in uh, times of of uh, a redistribution of wealth from from the from the masses to the elite, uh, which which works in exactly the opposite way of what people think it does. They think they can, you know, lower inequality by raising taxes, which is which is which is just weird. Uh, it's the other way around, and especially if you stop the money printing. And uh, I, I think we. The, the the experiment the fiat monetary experiment has gone so far so we're we, I, I think unfortunately that we're we're headed for very tumultuous times and and maybe very unstable times uh, when the crash uh, finally hits us it does seem pretty inevitable doesn't it it does uh, i i think bitcoin can function as a sort of airbag or uh, <laughs> A cushion to to uh, to make the inevitable impact or crash a, a bit easier for us to bear, but but uh, but still, uh, it's not looking good, is it? <laughs> no, not at all. And we, um, yeah, I mean, so you know, I know from from reading Mises, uh, one of the things that he always said was that there's no avoiding the inevitable crash um, on the tail end of monetary and credit expansion. He said, all you can really do is delay the inevitable, but eventually uh, things have to come back to reality. And one of the conversations that I was having with um, Greg Foss, who I met in Miami was that we want these systems to coexist for as long as possible. We want the dollar system, the Euro dollar system to continue doing what it's doing alongside Bitcoin for as long as it possibly can. Um, but I really do begin to worry and wonder how much longer they can keep it going um, without some sort of, you know, because in turn, if you look at debt cycles and those types of things, I don't see how much longer they can keep this going. Um, they're more or less out of ammunition other than printing more money to cover the liabilities that are currently uh, rippling through the system. Yeah, and, and with the El Salvador thing happening and the, maybe the Paraguay thing now then, uh, and where nation states start to uh, adopt Bitcoin as a national currency, if that if that works the way we think it will, that uh, like that those economies will really benefit from it, even even though they're small economies and may may not have such a big impact on the global economy right now, other other nation states will take notice, and other people, first and foremost, just people around the around the globe will take notice of what happens in. Uh, well, it's going to be very interesting to follow what happens in El Salvador on a like, and. W- what ripples that uh, tsunami will have on the on the uh, uh, macroeconomic uh, landscape of the entire world, I guess. Uh, I maybe if the U.S. will be invading El Salvador soon. Yeah, but it's it's much harder to, for them to do it in 2021 than it was back in the 90s or the 70s, right? True. Because. N- Nowadays, everyone has a phone, and like <laughs> a lot of U.S. citizens are already friends with the president now. So, like, I mean, we're so much cl- people are so much closer closer to each other. It's much harder for uh, 
for governments to do the really gruesome things and like invade countries and such, right? True. And I, I, I mean, they can. No. America's stretched much thinner now than it was back then. You know, geopolitically, economically, um, from from a military standpoint. Stretched? Uh, how do you mean stretched? Um, it's hard for me to explain without getting into specifics that I don't really want to get into. Um, but you mean it's it's like America is less less powerful or more powerful? Well, today? like in the final days of the Roman Empire, right, where yeah, yeah. they had them their forces spread so far out across the world um, that they were basically just too weak in the in the in their heart right and they the empire more or less fell apart yeah i can see that but then again it took a, the roman empire uh it it took a long time for people to realize that it didn't exist anymore mm. i mean it started with a bit debasing of the silver coin there the uh, what's it called the besant uh, denier or no denaris uh, yeah the, the denaris yeah or uh, I, I'm confusing it with another coin, the, the one that had the longevity, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, but in, in some areas of Europe, they didn't realize that the Roman Empire had fall, uh, fallen for for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. Uh, of course, that won't happen now since we have the communications networks that are so much more powerful than back in the days of the Roman Empire. So it's, it's hard to make the comparisons, but... Uh, if anything, now it feels more like it's the institutions that are failing in the West, and yeah. people don't are haven't yet realized that the institutions are are crumbling or crumbled, um, and have you know either no credibility or or no influence. The yeah, the the thing I sort of hopeful uh, hope for in this sense is is that we something similar to when the Soviet Union fell will happen that it just no because during the cold war I, i'm an old fart as you know so I, I i remember when the berlin wall fell and stuff like that so uh um and what no one expected was the for the cold war to just end in a nothingness mm -hmm. where where one side just ceased to exist mm -hmm. i mean no one saw that coming before the fall of the berlin wall and the and the collapse of the Soviet Union. No one could predict that. And that happened like really, really, really fast. So, uh, and not that it wasn't that violent. It could have been a lot worse, right? So, um, so uh, what we can hope for is, is like that the fall of the modern West will be similar to the fall of the Soviet Union in that sense. And that we have Bitcoin on the other side instead of oligarchs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on one hand, I wonder, you know, um, the, the Soviet Union is so interesting because in order to really function at the nation state level, they had to be capitalist, right? At the end of the day, all nation states are capitalists. It's just whether or not they afford that to their constituency. Um, yeah, yeah. A planned economy doesn't work. It's, right, it's just right. without price signals, you have nothing, right? But, but the Soviet Union had to trade. Um, you know, yeah, a with free other market nations. with other yeah. nations because they have yeah. no, you have to, uh, and and it's interesting, you know, that that when the Berlin Wall came down, you know, part of it was the influence of the West, um, 
and and just the the capitalistic realities of the market but today the global market is just looks so much different it's so much more distorted it's so much and not that it was perfect then either in the late 80s but no. um boy have have things has the world really changed in 30 years yeah 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 it's that's the thing year to year it doesn't change that much but over 10 years it's a, it's a completely different planet right so uh, it's hard to zoom out from i think uh, it's hard to to like i mean you lived through all these things and you you lived through like breakthroughs such as the the mobile phone which mm. seemed to happen overnight basically like, like everyone had smartphones in like less than two months it seemed uh, so a, a network effect can be a really powerful thing and uh, uh, yeah and uh, it's hard to tell where we are in in the in hyper bitcoinization wise which phase we're in i think we're still really really early i don't and think that, yeah, yeah i don't think it hasn't there yet uh, pretty far from it we're not at the uh, then suddenly phase yet it's, right. we're, we're just still brewing in the background yeah you know you look at el salvador um because obviously there's a lot of people who just talk a lot who have a lot of take a lot of issues with whether it be the El salvadorian president or how he conducts himself or some of the things he's done in the past uh, or the fact that, you know, Bitcoin is now a forced legal tender in his country. There's a lot of people who want to jump on the bandwagon and um, say, oh, I don't like this. I don't like that. Um, rather than taking a step back and looking at what Bitcoin can do for the people of El Salvador simply by allowing them access to it. Um, but one of the things that is really interesting to me with El Salvador is that the country is kind of having to to bootstrap it a little bit um, with the you know them rolling out the the government wallet and having to establish the the fund of sorts that allows for liquidity uh, between Bitcoin and the dollar you know at, at, in the in the government wallet to allow exchange between the two at point of sale for merchants and for individuals um, all of that is kind of needing to be bootstrapped by the government and yeah the market could do it eventually um but it would be how do i say it it would probably be a bit more painful on the front end um for the country to just implement bitcoin as a legal tender and then not do anything else um to try to facilitate that does that make sense yeah sort of but uh there's there's some important subtleties in this in this le legislation which many people misinterpret i mean it's it's forced in the sense that they are forced to take bitcoin but they're not forced uh, um, i mean merchants like brick and mortar shops are, are forced to take bitcoin as payments but they're not forced to keep them in bitcoin they can convert them instantly via this government app which exactly. is which is being like developed mm -hmm. by by jack Mahler's team right in uh uh, uh cooperating with the uh, Salvadorian government. But then it, you're not forced to use the official government wallet. You can use whatever software you want for accepting the Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. 
So, so you're not forced to to download a specific app on your phone or, or anything uh, Orwellian like that. So, so it's it's not as bad as it sounds, even though it's top down. Uh, I mean, they they are pushing for it, and and uh, merchants are forced to accept Bitcoin. But but what is that really? Like they're just forced to to speak math, <laughs> or like it's it's not really. A, I mean, there are far more enforced, uh, far far worse enforced policies than having to accept Bitcoin as a payment. Yeah, R- right. I mean, I mean, you're still forced to pay your taxes in this or that currency in every country in the world. What what's so bad about forcing merchants to accept a a a, a voluntary payment system? Uh, I mean, I I think it's just yeah more than not anything, that big a deal yeah. more than anything they're forcing the merchants to accept the bitcoin point of sale system that they're implementing not necessarily you know it, it all uh, for all intents and purposes they're practically not even forcing them to accept the currency if it's immediately converted into say dollars upon point of at point of sale uh, it's more yep. so that they're forcing the merchants to implement Bitcoin point of sale systems uh, via strike. yeah, but more importantly, they're not they're not forcing them to use Strike. They could use BTC Paid Server or anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, as long as it's Bitcoin, they can mm-hmm. use whatever they want. So, and I uh, think there are, and I think people are rightfully skeptical, right? That that things will stay that way, right? That that they look at that and they see the government wallet as the potential inroads for some sort of authoritarianism um it seems unlikely though uh because as long as there are people in el salvador that recognize you know the the bitcoin network is more than just the el salvador and to be uh interoperable with that network is extremely powerful right and extremely valuable i don't see people once now that they have access to it now that they've been given that monetary sovereignty you don't see them willing to want to give that up anytime soon. And I, I think before before we criticize El Salvador about this uh, government app for Bitcoin, uh, I, I mean, all the other governments of the world, I mean, all of them force their their uh, citizens or their subjects or whatever you may call them to, to use this or that app uh, for banking and for, for the central banking. Like... Uh, you are forcing people to use a certain system by just uh, having a, a, a legal tender law at all, or, or like a national currency. Then you are forcing people into certain behaviors, right? And I, I know here in Sweden, cash is almost abandoned. Uh, we have almost only card payments, and uh, uh, everyone uses uh, debit cards uh, here and, and credit cards, and uh, we. We sign everything with a bank ID app, which is a, a, a private company uh, that has a monopoly on that market. There's like nothing else you can use in order to identify yourself at the official government institutions, websites or or the bank or whatever. So uh, uh, I, I think w- what people ought to react to is more more that that thing and, and like the more how... how 
countries tend to look more and more like China every day instead of like bashing El Salvador for forcing their population to use an, a free and open network, which everyone on earth has access to. I mean, it's really a no-brainer, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you saw um, Saifedean's criticisms of some of the guys from the Cato Institute, who, of course, were some of the first ones to come out and criticize the the horror of a government like El Salvador forcing its people to use Bitcoin. Um, no, he came out with a he came out yet. with a really rightful or not what's the right word? He came out with a with a really poignant pushback and said, um, "How come?" You know, you, all this time you've been able to criticize the forced legal tender laws in every country on this earth, you know, with all of their respective currencies. And you choose not to bash those at all. Why Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a threat there, right? <laughs> Bitcoin is a threat to them somehow. So <laughs> it must be something like that. Or, I mean, it's so weird. Um it's not only the Cato Institute, but the, the, they have received criticism from all, all kinds of, you know, <laughs> dinosaurs. Uh, so, uh, yeah. But anyway, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens mm -hmm. with that. And uh, I, I, I recently reached out to to the president of El Salvador, hoping for, uh, or actually, was Yoni Appleberg who makes makes those animations of my articles that and his own animations as well. I reached out to him first and like asked if he could help in any way to uh, to ed educate the Salvadorian people. I mean, uh, I'd I'd love to get involved myself as well to 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 just if we can help this country in the with during the transition period. I think why not? Why why not be a part of the? Uh, I mean, it is an experiment, but so is fiat. So wh why not be at the forefront of this and and try to help this this country? I mean, yeah, I I know I I'm sort of libertarian leaning myself, so I I understand that uh, that we are supposed to dislike governments uh, and and so on, but but I think there's a lot of other other. Uh, um, governments to dislike before you dislike the government of El Salvador, which is, which is actually trying something new and trying trying to do something really cool here. So yeah, no, I agree, and I think um, I I don't know, you know, whether or not I, you know we don't know I don't know the president of El Salvador I don't know any of the lawmakers in El Salvador and I don't know how well they understand Bitcoin I don't know if they realize that. Bitcoin makes progressive taxes impossible. I don't know if they realize that Bitcoin makes um, ideas like like socialism impossible. I don't know if they know that Bitcoin um, is unseizable private property, right? That that Bitcoin is um, the digital enforcement of property law. Uh, maybe they do, right? Maybe they do, but do they understand the implications of that? on a society at the geopolitical level um, did you did you listen to any interviews with him i have a listen to a, a couple yeah because i i think he makes a lot of sense and that he for a politician he sounds very very sensible to me hmm. uh i i don't know anything about his history before this i mean like like most of us i hadn't heard of the president of el salvador until this thing happened mm -hmm. uh but 
but he sounds very sensible and i think he knows all these things that it makes socialism impossible and in in, in like in the long run it makes the nation state impossible mm-hmm. uh but i think that like having grown up in a country where with one corrupt government like uh, <laughs> relieving another one uh, and all the former presidents being murdered and thrown in jail and stuff like that and living in such a corrupt society I think you don't really if you get the chance to to be the president of the country you might actually have he might be one of those one-offs that that that, that actually has an a, a more long-term agenda and genuinely want to make wants to make his his home country a better place long term hmm. and if that is the case it's on the right track right this is like the only the only valid <laughs> the, the only practically useful thing for a country to do to in order for that region of the planet earth to mm-hmm. to be prosperous long term mm-hmm. i i think adopting sound money is the, like it's it's such a key move and what's interesting is while so it's it's a good thing for the people right it's a huge thing for the people in the country um it's 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 a neutral thing if not a negative thing for the institution of the el salvadorian government right because ultimately it takes power out of their hand um yeah and it's a big accelerant for bitcoin's relevance um globally geopolitically at the nation state level it's a it's a huge catalyst for bitcoin being looked at seriously by every country on earth um and some probably won't be as open to uh, should they come to understand the implications of what this monetary technology will will upend, right? Like I said, the, the progressive tax schemes, you know, it, it Bitcoin, you, you can't be an anti-capitalist under Bitcoin. No, and, and uh, uh, an interesting aspect of it is that it's, legal tender in El Salvador now which means that every other country on earth will have to will have to uh, like when people are traveling from that other country to El Salvador and they're going to change uh, go to the forex at the local airport and change currency into that the currency of that country they have to they have to be able to to convert their local currency into bitcoins uh, without draconian taxes like like here uh, here in sweden now it's 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 uh you, you taxes as, as as an asset and you pay like 30 percent gains tax on it if you if you sell bitcoin and do it the proper way and if you declare that you sold bitcoin you have to th- you have to pay like 30 percent gains tax for every every time you sell them mm-hmm. which is weird in itself but but that it will be a lot harder for 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 uh, other nations to 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 keep these laws in place when there's an actual country that has this as that uses this as as its national currency. Don't you think? Absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. I think uh, it was Kayla Long that was speculating on how theoretically um, that could make all you know taxes or all regulation that treats Bitcoin like an asset. Um, defunct or or null and void or un, oh, unworkable yeah obsolete obsoleted yeah, because yeah. now it's a foreign currency and it has to be recognized as a foreign currency 
Yeah, it, it really does. And especially if, if Paraguay is now country number two in line to it. And then you have this beautiful prisoner's dilemma. I, I think you saw this, like the, the prisoner's dilemma game theory game played out with Bitcoin and nation states. Like if, if you have a country A and country B and both do nothing, uh, none of them gains anything from like, but if country A adopts Bitcoin before country B, then they get a head start and they make a lot more money from from just adopting Bitcoin before the other nation state. Uh, so so nation nation B will try to adopt it as soon as possible after nation A does. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So so uh, so like I, I think like uh, El Salvador is just the first domino and uh, hopefully Paraguay will be the second domino and then all the other nation states sooner or later. Right. There's nothing stopping this. In some ways, I would say, you know, the first one, the first mover had the most to gain. But in other ways, um, the second mover has more to gain than the first mover because now they're interoperable with the first mover, right? A A moves into Bitcoin, and now when B moves into Bitcoin, B is fully interoperable with A. Um, imagine yeah, yeah. You, Paraguay moves onto Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Now Bitcoin and um, or Paraguay and El Salvador can trade between each other without any concerns for foreign currency exchange, uh, yep. without any friction in settlement of payment between nations. I mean, you're talking about a huge upgrade in the ability to conduct trade at the nation state level. Yeah. And after a nation state number three comes in, you have Metcalf's law kicking in as well, right? The, 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 uh, the value of the network is equal to the square, the squared. Right, right. So, so they, it's even it's four times more valuable for them for C coming. Yeah, in. exactly. Because they nation state C has has two different countries to trade with instead of just one, right? And nation state four has has three, and and, and so does everyone else. So, so it's uh, it's exponential, and it's the uh, well, the entire na nature of the number go up technology is 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 uh, exponential. Uh, it has to be, and uh, it's it's a weird. Uh, I mean, all the incentives on on a personal level and on a nation state level and everywhere, they just align so 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 beautifully with Bitcoin. I think that like you have very little to gain from from a uh, I'm against Bitcoin point of view. Like like long term, these these like <laughs> what's the opposite of a proponent? <laughs> <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for? An antagonist, an antagonist, or an opponent to to Bitcoin uh, has has very little. You, uh, if you market yourself as a as an antagonist to Bitcoin or an opponent to Bitcoin, you're, you're you just wait ten years and you repeat a shift, right? There's like there's like an ocean of data speaking against you. So so yeah, I I think it's just beautiful. I'm just uh, grabbing the popcorn and and uh, and see where this takes us, but but I find El Salvador to be a, a very very interesting experiment. Uh, I agree, absolutely. Do you think? Do you notice how many people there are that that it seems like on the surface, or if you didn't know anything about them? If you didn't know how they felt about Bitcoin, you would look at that person or you would think about that person. You would think they 
would get Bitcoin or they would they have reason to understand Bitcoin or, or they would benefit a lot from Bitcoin. Um, and so many of those people in so many cases are, like you said, antagonists. Um, and I constantly find myself wondering why. Um, I, I yeah. guess it's kind of a common thread in history for Luddites to sort of be against uh, paradigm shifts in technology um, or not able to recognize them. But it seems particularly prevalent with Bitcoin, and I often wonder why. I, I, unfortunately, I think it's because people aren't as smart as you think they might be. Because, like, you remember when, when social networks happened, like when Facebook became a big thing. I, I remember feeling very disappointed at at. Uh, uh, like a, a lot of the people I knew posted very stupid things very often. And I, I remember being very disappointed in humanity's lack of nuance or a lack of imagination or, or like ability to grasp certain, certain aspects of whatever. I mean, uh, of course, it, it sounds a bit arrogant, but I, I think a lot of people have a, a very good, that they're very skilled at seeming like they're smart, but they're really not that smart. <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth there. Uh, yeah, uh, it's unfortunate, of course. But, but like the, <laughs> you, you, the, the, there are very many examples of of bitcoiners turning into shitcoinery for a quick buck right and and uh, and they think they do a smart move but it's to to the real bitcoiners it's it's it, it it becomes obvious pretty quick what what they're really trying to do because because we're all i, I mean it is good for Bitcoiners to promote Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, that that's part of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course, we, both you and I, have a, a an interest in in speaking positively about Bitcoin. Of course, we do because our, our stacks will become more valuable and we will become richer from it. So, but but it's important to be honest, not only to our audiences but to ourselves about that, and not let let the greed take over so mm -hmm. to speak because because we i think real bitcoiners do this more first and foremost out of the uh, a belief in in first principles and and like a non-violence principle <laughs> to begin with i mean bitcoin makes forceful uh takeover of property or for, for like it makes violence a lot less effective it makes theft harder uh, mm -hmm. and uh I think that's a very beautiful, beautiful thing and worth worth fighting for. And like, this is the first first such thing I found in life that I, I genuinely believe that uh, I'm on the right side of this uh, of this thing, and it's worth fighting for. But 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 I believe that there there are a lot of charlatans out there. I mean, 2017. When all the when the shitcoin boom and the in the bull market of 2017, I mean, it's unfortunate that like the Bitcoin space contains some of the most brilliant minds out there and some of the most principled human beings you can find and and really 
I mean, beautiful souls that truly believe in in uh, humanity's uh, like uh, propensity for good. Propensity for good. That's that's the words I'm looking for. Uh, uh, and and you have all the you have them mixed up with all these clowns and charlatans and snake oil salesmen, which seem to be everywhere, mm-hmm. and there are throngs of followers and gullible people. I mean, it's it's so sad because it's uh, it, it seems very hard for people to to uh, like separate the the signal from the noise because mm-hmm. there's so much noise out there, hey, and you, you have this. Yeah. What else is interesting to consider? Um, all of those people before they got into selling snake oil or creating shit coins or whatever they do, they were doing something else. Um, and I think that this probably gives us a pretty good sample size. I think if you just kind of look at Bitcoin and look at the Bitcoin ecosystem and look at the attention economy in Bitcoin, yeah, it might be a little bit hyperbolic, but it probably gives you a pretty good sample size of what the rest of the world is like, right? The way people, people that engage in, in, activities you know businesses goods and services information all the things that happen you know in all of the industries outside of bitcoin um they're probably just as bad you just don't notice it because bitcoin is is so unique in the way that it shines a light on um the truth and untruth yeah i mean i worked for the public sector and i had no moral quarrels with it then (laughs) But I do now. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm starting to view everyone who works for the public sector as part of a mafia scheme. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so, so, uh, but it's really weird because you're, you have your upbringing and you go to school and you have, like uh, society functions around the notion of uh, us being governed by a government. That there's like no no way around that, and, and it it took me a, a lot of years to realize that I'm not really supposed to be governed by anyone. <laughs> I I ought to be in the driver's seat here. It's my life after all, right? And it's my family, and like they those people don't give a shit what happens to me or my family. I do, <laughs> you know. So um, one of the things you you find working in um, in in public industry particularly if you accidentally find yourself red pilled or orange pilled in that environment is that nobody really has any interest in creating value. Um, nothing that's done is generally profitable. Um, nothing it, it, things are done because, you know, you're, you're meeting an expectation, you're checking a box, you're filling out a form, um, you're filing paper, you're, you're holding meetings. It, it, a lot, it's just very, um, and everybody kind of intuitively knows this, like they, the people that work in these types of industries, like they know it intrinsically. And like, there's a lot of kind of game theory and like um, sort of just showing up, getting through the day, going home and doing it until you're old enough to retire on a nice cushy government pension. Um, and, and sort of internalizing and being totally okay with the fact that you don't create or contribute any value to society. And it's kind of just like a little joke. Yeah, it really is. But, but I, th- to be honest, I think most people don't don't even reflect uh, on these things. Uh, I mean, no, they, yeah, they don't even think about it. Yeah, they, they they think of a job as like something. Everyone needs a job. Everyone knows that. You go to your job. You do eight hours. You come home. You, you watch Netflix and you eat cheese doodles and 
I mean, it's so predictable. Uh, people's behavior are. Uh, it saddens me that this is the case, but I, I think most people are just ignorant about about these things, and and they don't have a moral problem with being a cog in a, a machine that, regardless of what that machine is, mm. I mean, they're happy being cogs. Mm. So, That's an interesting way of putting it. And those people, you know, truth be told, those people probably fare better under a system like we have today uh, than they would have under any other systems in the past because yeah. more wealth is extracted from the value-creating part of society and redistributed to them yeah. than they would have been afforded, you know, under a sound money system. Yeah, it's, whether it's they, but weird. they don't even realize that consciously. No, no, know? of course not. But there are interesting similarities to to like a a, a virus or or like an ant colony, where where the, where the group has uh, you know being being a yes sayer in the group, like following whatever the or a school of fish, whatever the other fish are doing. You're 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 uh, like. It's evolutionary correct for you to do whatever one else is doing, mm-hmm, probably. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but then again, if <clears throat> in a human society where you can you can promote yourself as a yes sayer, but really do the other the opposite of what everyone else is doing, that can give you a real advantage. Which is why psychopaths end up on top of every group, and they <laughs> like. Uh, I, I think these things are so fascinating, and like when 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 groups of humans uh, are larger than Dunbar's numbers so that we can't all know each other, uh, things tend to go wrong. I mean, groups, groups of over, over like, what, what is it? Uh, 200, I think. Yeah. 200 individuals. They tend to be become nightmares after mm-hmm. <laughs> above that number. Mm-hmm. And, and I know from working for a company that, that, that had around 200 employees when I started and, grew bigger that mm-hmm. the, the, there are problems I, I wouldn't say that's an awful place now but uh, I, I would a say culture that shift yeah it's... That there is a culture shift and there are problems with with the transition from a below Dunbar's number group to an above Dunbar's number group definitely hmm. that's a really interesting uh, thought um, and and you know, I would say probably below a Dunbar's number group, um, employees probably feel more personal responsibility towards the owner exactly. of the company, towards yeah. the product that they produce, towards the brand of the company, towards the satisfaction of the customers, right? Because yeah. they're they're a part of that thing. But when the Dunbar number, you know, grows so great that they don't feel connected to the the entity that they're a part of anymore i i no. guarantee that all of those things break uh, down they, they need a story or like a coherent narrative or a, a something inter- human su- yeah an intersubjective fantasy to cling on to mm-hmm. in order to 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 uh, to like uh to 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 make groups larger than 200 individuals work at all you need an intersubjective fantasy like a, an a thing that people think is reality, but it's really just a tool for keeping the larger group together. And mm-hmm. I think like re- religions and nation states and all these things that, that, that they are all that even money. It's, it's just a story 
that we tell ourselves that it's true, but it's 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 really not true at its core. But we need it in order to form larger groups so we can like spread like a virus all over the globe. And that's like the most interesting thing that I've noticed over the last few years is the the intersubjective story sort of you're watching it all kind of come apart at the seams across the whole world. Um, and that's why yeah. they're just increasingly throwing more and more bizarre narratives at the wall, right? To, to try to wrangle everything back to the center because it's all just coming apart and it's all just flying away. Um, yeah, so they throw aliens and COVID and climate change and whatever it takes to yeah. create some sort of cohesive narrative to, to keep everybody sort of in the place. Yeah, and it's interesting how it's almost always based around fear. Uh, like the uh, the urge to save humanity is always almost always a false front for the urge to rule, right? Like the, the all these things that they throw at us with terrorism or climate change or whatever it might be, they're based uh, based on fear. It's never a coherent like positive message. Like well, let's let's all rally behind this positive thing. You, know, you very rarely hear that. And I think it's so interesting with, with with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the exact opposite of this. Mm-hmm. Like the the don't trust verify culture is like the no, I'm not going to buy your story. I'm going to look it up myself. That mm-hmm. that's like the that's like the basic mindset. You need that mindset in order to get Bitcoin. I think, and and sadly, I think that's why it's why it's not as popular as it should be yet because because you really need that mindset. Well. Yeah, no, I agree. And but also, <clears throat> I would say, a, apart from number go up, the other thing that's so attractive about Bitcoin to outsiders <coughs> is that we're probably one of the only groups with a with a noticeable realist forward optimism. Um, yeah, generally, because all of these other narratives are so um, nihilistic and generally pessimistic. Um, it's a very rare thing to encounter a group of people who not just are optimistic, but realistically optimistic to the degree where they can explain why. No, I agree totally. Like, you could argue that some religious groups are optimistic, but they're usually optimistic about the afterlife and not the not the the actual life they're living here. Yeah, now. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's a different thing, I think. So, like, yeah, very few people are optimistic about, and even even in a non-Bitcoin world, I mean, uh, if you read uh, Stephen Pinker or Hans Rosling or uh, any of these, there there are a couple of positive thinkers that are not Bitcoiners uh, and a couple of books that came out that, uh, like most metrics around like child mort- mortality and absolute poverty and stuff like that. It's, it's actually going down everywhere on the wor- mm-hmm. in the world. So, so we're actually much better off now than we ever were as, as a species. Right. So, so, uh, so uh, th- there's there's a lot of reasons to to be optimistic. Even that, you, you, I mean, you can be an optimist, even the, even though you're cynically admitting that there there are a lot of pro- inherent problems with all our systems. And like, I, I mean, 
you can well, be an. You can I, be I an mean, author. more so like the 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 intersubjective narratives, right? Like we're boiling the oceans. Everyone's going to die from a virus. Terrorism mm-hmm. is going to destroy everyone. The aliens are going to invade. Like not not that I have a problem with cynicism or with you know admitting that there are real problems. Um, more so, just a, a never or a, a consuming sense of dread right about the future just because it's it's hopelessness yeah and especially these narratives that require a collective move like like lockdowns for instance or mm-hmm. like they, they all they all center around fear as you say and uh, like uh, and it's a very scary thing because like when fear is the motivating factor for for people to do stuff. I mean, that's how wars start, right? Mm-hmm. You have to kill this other tribe because they're gonna kill you if don't if if, if you don't kill them, which which is almost always not true, <laughs> except for maybe the will of the psychopath on top. So, uh, and in order for that to work, people have to be totally demoralized, totally without hope. Um, to the point yeah, yeah. where they'll well they where where they will willingly say okay you can lock me in my home uh, yeah, i that. will not leave this is this is the only hope right this is the only this tyranny is my only hope yeah for that you need central banking because right. like i i view so like if if religion gave us the illusion of an afterlife that would be heaven like like a, a glorious afterlife the central bank uh, took that role, but but gave us the promise of a glorious life in this life. Like if you just work hard and buy, you will be shit rich, and you will uh, the the illusion of everyone being able to become filthy rich under a central banking <laughs> uh, system is it, it, ridiculous. But but that's what they did. They they they, they like replaced the 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 function of the church in keeping people working and happy because they had a, an afterlife to look forward to and the bankers gave us like something in this life to look forward to well, if only we bought their story i i would say that that's kind of what institutions always do right i mean they always yeah. sort of say okay th- you know he, they just present and it, and sometimes you know it can be something really um, mild. It doesn't necessarily have to be something world-shaking, but an institution presents, you know, like a, a narrative for the future, and they say, "This is what we will. This is what we want. This is what we'll achieve." And sometimes they're they can be anywhere on the spectrum, right? Of of mundane to totalitarian and evil, right? No. And, it, and it's almost irrelevant which one it is, but that's kind of how an institution operates. Um, yeah. Here's where we want to go, and this is how we will get there. And whether those two things are um, even related is is almost irrelevant as well, because it's ultimately about the means of whatever the institution intends to how the the means of how they uh, intend yeah. to arrive at their destination. Yeah, and as as you said before, that like the scary part is that the narratives have changed from like maybe a, a an optimistic vision of the future, like this institution will do this, so we can have this later on. In, in, instead, we have uh, if this institution didn't exist, we, we'll, we're all doomed in X amount of years, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that. That's it's a subtle change, but 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 at most of the narratives around politics, especially, have seem to have converged around 
that instead of actually having a vision for the future, like no no one really has a solution to what will happen when we have automatic cars and that like at the when when every job is automated and like there, there there's no solution in the fiat monetary system to how we can all thrive if if uh, software takes all our jobs. Uh, so so instead they give us these narratives of if we don't do this or that we're doomed due to the virus or global warming or or aliens or whatever. <laughs> Right. So um, we'll just eat bugs and collect universal basic income. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, and universal basic income is such such a vulgar idea to me because uh, I I think it's to when you when you've read Mises uh, a couple of times and and you read Rothbard and all these uh, Austrians you it's 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 so bleedingly obvious that UBI is. Uh, can never function long term and that it's uh, like the main I, I think the main objective of the real proponents of UBI is to, to uh, is to get people to vote for more and more UBI I mean a, a government which gives UBI to the people people are not going to vote against their own survival mm. So if there's another politician in that country that already has UBI, uh, no one will vote for that other uh, politician because most people are already living off the UBI. Mm-hmm. And it's a death spiral re- regardless because yeah, then you have no productive people left in the country. And th- this is like ties into the, the problem with collectivism to begin with, that like people will not vote against their own self-interest. And right. if they're in the public sector, they won't they won't vote for the politicians that want to diminish the public sector, mm-hmm. which makes the public sector grow and grow and grow. And the public sector is, it's just, it's just uh, confiscation that, redistribution of productive wealth. It, it is UBI in a sense yeah. <laughs> already. And, uh, and it's not working. And uh, I mean, why would we want more of that? And why would we want the public sector to be even less productive than than it is today? Because that's what UBI is. It's it's like paying people to do nothing. People will do nothing if you pay them to do nothing. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's uh, it's all part of the shared delusion, my friend. <laughs> this idea that we need that we must be governed. Uh, and then all yeah. these all these relatively new ideas and problems, as long as we just keep charging ahead in this trajectory that's put us in this awful mess, we have we. It's this this idea. It's like it's like you're you're heading towards the waterfall, and you're like, oh man, that looks really bad. Like I don't want to go over that waterfall. And the captain says, it's okay. We need to just keep going in this direction. In fact, we need to go faster in this direction if you want to avoid the waterfall. And you're like, well, I don't know. We're getting a lot closer to the waterfall, and it looks like we're going to go over the edge. And he says, nope. We need to we need to go as fast as we possibly can in this direction, and that will prevent us from going over the edge. It's it's madness. Yeah, and I think most people underestimate their own worth, because if if we lived in a truly uh, global, sound money, free market, uh, then like let's say hyper Bitcoinization happened, so every every new good or service that came into the economy was was divided by these twenty one million and was was like stored in this economic battery or whatever you may call it that the Bitcoin network is. 
in in that case you could when you're 12 years old you could do uh like <laughs> you could do someone a favor and go shopping for them or whatever and get an amount of bitcoin and just sit on those till uh, and you can live off of those maybe you never have to work again because they're worth so much in the future when mm-hmm. when when all of the economic power goes into the same system we can all work a lot less we can get so much more for less and the people miss this aspect of the equation like if uh, the uh, the more expensive the money is to produce the 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 cheaper everything else and the mm. the the less expensive of the money is to produce the the more expensive everything else so and, w- and what this means is that uh, on a sound money standard we would have to work a lot less in order to support ourselves so this is it, it's such a beautiful lifeline uh, uh, because right now people think that they have to work harder and harder every year and that uh, we're in more dire situation for every year because of the competition between everyone competition is a good thing it makes everything cheaper it makes production costs go down it makes transportation costs go down everything is approaching a zero marginal cost so everything in reality is much cheaper to produce much cheaper to distribute but we just don't have access to it because we don't have a sound money system and it's 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 so weird that the 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 solution is right in front of people buy something that keeps its value over time <laughs> but they refuse to uh, they think that they're not worth anything they think that their time isn't worth anything when when a, a really small favor uh, when you're young when you're young could could really support you for the rest of your life uh, on a sound money system yeah you know I, in that sense i don't blame people um, for feeling often hopeless or like their time is worthless or like they, you know, they're, they have no value to contribute um, because their, their time, their value is being stolen and debased. And how, yeah. how could you blame them for feeling um, like they're, like they're worthless, like their time is worthless, like they contribute nothing like, like humanity is, a, is, is the disease, right? How can you blame them? Uh, the time of humanity is constantly being stolen. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is, and it's a very sad part of the human story. Like that, you have to go up and work eight to five every day because it's really not like that. And your time is much more valuable than you think. And you, you, uh, even to others, your time is valuable. Like what you do during the day is valuable. Uh, yeah. Well. I think that's a that's a good place to leave it. I think. Uh, yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, yeah, man. We got into some interesting aspects of this and that. So definitely, Newt. Where can uh, the listeners find you if they want to check out more of your stuff? <coughs> well, I have. Um, <clears throat> I'm mostly active on Twitter. Uh, I guess that's where we connected, right? So I'm uh, yeah. at at Knut Swanholm on Twitter. Okay. And uh, I have my author's page on Amazon. I don't, I don't really have a website set up yet. Uh, I'm planning to do, I, I mean, I quit my day job. So I'm doing Bitcoin full time from like uh, the end of this year or something like that. I don't really awesome. know how, how long I'll work for, uh, for the company I'm currently working for. So, so right now, Bitcoin is still a hobby for me and, and not my full time job. But, but 
I'm planning to do this full time. So uh, I have a Patreon nowadays. Uh, you can find me there also if you want to support me and my work. And uh, uh, but but like tw Twitter is my main uh, my main outlet for for thinking in public. And then I I'm uh, I I've made two books. Uh, these two. Oh, there, so, well, there won't be video, so uh, you might want right. to say the names. <laughs> yes, uh, the first one is called Bitcoin Sovereignty Through Mathematics, and the other one is called Bitcoin Independence Reimagined. You can find them on Amazon. Cool. And uh, I made a, uh, I, I write articles for, for different Bitcoin publications, such as Citadel 21 magazine here behind me. Yeah. You can't see that either, <laughs> but you can. I can. Uh, <laughs> uh, and... Uh, some of these articles and some of the chapters of the books have turned into small animated videos. Uh, I collaborate with Guy Swan and Yoni Appleberg and make uh, animated videos of my articles, which is, uh, it's a real treat for me to see them come alive. And uh, you can find those on YouTube. Just search for my name there. It should come up. Fantastic. I'll drop yeah. links to uh, some of that stuff down in the show notes. So uh, thanks Excellent. for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs>